morning. Welcome to the Tuesday morning men's Bible study at Park City's Presbyterian Church. My name is Paul. I serve as one of the pastors here. If I've never met you before, I'd love to meet you afterwards today. We're glad that you are here on this nice, cold, and crisp morning. It is good to be together as men and to be together in God's Word. If you've never been with us before, uh, by design, the way that this study works is we take a particular uh, book of the Bible, and for our semester together in the winter and spring, uh, we're going to take a particular topic this time. We're going to work our way through it using God's Word as our guide. Each week you'll have a different teacher, uh, but I would argue um, just as important as what happens after the teaching, uh, that you would then take what is taught and that you would then work it down into your hearts, applying it through the brotherhood of, of Christian community. And so you need a table group. If you don't have one of those, would you please go see Melissa at the front? She'll make sure that you can uh, find one and participate through our study that way. And then the other thing I want to mention, if you've not registered, each study that we do, we want you to register. And so I know many of you have thought, well, I registered in the fall. Does that cover me for the whole year? You'd like to think so, right? Uh, but no, it doesn't. Uh, we know that things change. Uh, some of you um, are new with us now, and you weren't able to join us in the fall. And of course, vice versa is possible. And so if you look at the bottom of your handout, hopefully you got one of these on your way in, you will see a QR code. If you're like, I don't know what a QR code is, how to use it, or what happens here, that's okay. We are here to help. So again, Melissa's at the front, and she would love to help you get registered. Uh, if you do know what that is, and you know how to get there, uh, then uh, we'd ask you to go ahead and scan that, register. Of course, you can always go to pcpc.org men. I think we can remember that, right? pcpc.org slash men. You can find the registration link there as well. Again, if you're like, man, I don't get any of that, you're in, you're in, a, you're in the right place. Um, you're in the right place, and we'd love to help you do that. Please see Melissa at the front. Again, this is your handout. Hopefully you've had, gotten one of these. Uh, we'll be working our way through Romans 1 today each time as we look through our topic, which is going to be the attributes of God, and I'll explain more about why we're looking at that in just a second. Uh, you'll, we'll work our way through a particular passage or passages, and then on the back, you've got discussion questions. Um, I always put, and I, our other pastors always put way more on here than you can possibly discuss on a Tuesday morning. We know that. That's okay. You might get to one, two. That's okay. I would challenge you to then take it home with you and let these questions guide you throughout the week as you continue to contemplate what God has taught you and what he is teaching you about himself. So uh, let me pray. We're going to jump right in uh, to our topic for the semester on the attributes of God. And I'll explain why we're studying that and why I think it is so important for us as men living in our world. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of being together this morning. We thank you for the gift of your holy word, that you have revealed yourself to us. We thank you that as we will see this morning, you've revealed yourself to us in creation and the things that you have made that we would recognize that there is a creator who has made all things by the word of his power. But we also thank you that you've also revealed yourself to us through your word. That you have plainly and clearly 
shown us not only that there is a God, but you've shown us what you're like so that we would come to know you more deeply. And so I pray, Father, uh, not only this morning, but in our semester together, that by your Holy Spirit and the grace of your word, we would come to know you, Lord God. We wouldn't simply know about you. We would come to know you and what it means to be known by you and why that not only changes us, but will change the world. And so we ask now that you would draw near to us as we draw near to your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Two of the most fundamental questions that a human being can ask. Is there a God and what is he like? Is there a God and what is he like? I would argue that most philosophical questions, most fields of study and thought have at least started there at some point to try to answer that question. Now, of course, the first question negates the second, depending on how you answer it. So if you decide there is not a God, well, the second question doesn't matter. But here's what I've observed uh, in my short time on this planet. That so often what you see in people that will say there is not a God is they still attempt to answer the second question. Have you ever seen that? Perhaps even in your own life, if you've ever wrestled with doubt and wondered in those moments, is there really a God? Can I trust him? If there was a God, then how could this happen in my life? If you ever even noticed that you've been in those moments, we, we very quickly jump to the second question. We try to explain what he is like. And even an atheist will attempt to explain what he is like. You see, because I think the answer to the first question doesn't just happen in a vacuum. We don't simply just say, well, let me decide if there is a God or not today. Now, the way that we answer the first question is actually by the second what is he like? And so really the question, more fundamental than is a God, is what do you think God is like? How you answer that question will determine whether or not you believe in him, whether or not you trust him, what you think about him, what you think about the world, and I'll argue even what you think about yourself. So my question for you, and really my question for us this whole semester together is how do you answer that question. What is God like? What has influenced the way that you answer that question? What are the things that have shaped your view and understanding of God and his character? And are you even aware of the various influences, experiences, teachings, and I would argue even misunderstandings that have infiltrated your heart and mind that have warped your understanding and view of God and what he is like. Is there a God and what is he like? We live in a time where, of course, those two things are very much contested. We live in a time where it is assumed that there probably isn't a God by many people and for a lot of people, what is he like? Well, he's angry. He's manipulative. He's selfish. He's not interested in me or you and the most deep mundane details of life. All of these things come not just from philosophy 
and books and study, but from experience. Experiences of being let down, experiences of having hopes that were never realized, experiences of wrestling with God through prayer, only to wonder if he's even listening. Maybe those experiences define some of your own lives this morning. All the more reason that we have a true and right understanding of God when we face the fallenness of our world, but also the difficulty of human life this side of heaven. Is there a God and what is he like? For that reason, we're going to be looking at the attributes of God in this semester together. We're going to be searching the scriptures to understand who he is, his character, who he's revealed himself to be. And the reason we're doing that is because we want to get to know him. We want to know what it means to be known by him. J.R. Packer in Knowing God uh, begins by talking about the vast difference between knowing about God and knowing God. You understand what I mean by that? And he argues that it's possible to know a lot of things about God and yet not really know him. Not really know him personally. He talks about knowing God secondhand. Knowing him through books, through pastors, through theologians. I like to call it vicarious Christianity. And in our podcast-driven world, I think there are a lot of vicarious Christians today. People who know God vicariously through the lens of someone else. And there's lots of great theology and lots of great books out there that help us know who God is. And I would recommend them to you in our study. I will be looking at many of them myself. Uh, books, I just saw one over here talking to Jay Turner. It's a great book by A.W. Tozer on who God is, knowledge of the holy. Or you can look at Pink's book, The Attributes of God. I've been working my way through a two-volume giant tome by Stephen Charnock, Attributes of God. Amazing. Herman Bovink. There are great theologies out there, and I would recommend many to you. We can even send those out to you. But in our study throughout the semester, our goal is not simply to live vicariously and to know a lot of facts about God and his attributes. Our goal will be to get to know him, and we do that through his word. And so each week we won't look at a particular just piece of theology, but we will look at a passage from the Bible. We will search the scriptures for who God has revealed himself to be. Is there a God and what is he like? How do we come to know who God is? He tells us in his word. So if you have a Bible or you can get your hand out, Romans chapter 1 is where we're going to begin. I love the book of Romans for so many reasons. Uh, it is an incredible study. Uh, we've looked at it even as men uh, before. Um, maybe it's time that we get it back out and we'll look at that next time. It is a great book. And the way that Paul begins in writing to the Christian church in Rome is to help them understand their own cultural moment. 
And um, perhaps you have heard others talk about this, but what we are seeing in the West today in some ways is a return back to what we saw in Rome. Of course, there's nothing new under the sun, and so we see these things repeated, but there's also a reality that what we experience today is also new and different because where Rome was pre-Christian, we live in an increasingly post-Christian world. But there are similarities. And it's interesting as Paul begins to unpack all that the Christian church faced in Rome, he boiled all of it really down to one thing, knowing God. As you and I make our way through our cultural moment and we face questions of sexuality and identity and where truth comes from, I would argue, and it's not really my argument, I'm going to say it's Paul's argument that underneath it all, really fundamentally is the answer to those two questions. Is there a God and what he is like? And the way that you answer that question will then determine everything else in your life. What you believe about sexuality and gender and politics and the world that we live in first has to begin with, is there a God and what is he like? And let me show you why the Apostle Paul thinks this is so important and why I believe it's important for us today. And the first thing I want you to know is this, that God has revealed himself to all men. He's revealed himself to all men, whether you believe in him or not. God has revealed himself to all men. I want you to look with me at Romans 1. I'm going to begin in verse 18. So again, you can turn in your Bible or look at your hand out there. Notice what the Apostle Paul says. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed, and that word is going to be important for us this morning. Revelation, revealing, is a disclosure, a, a revealing of who God is. He is purposefully putting himself on display. This is important, because as we we're going to talk about, one of the most fundamental parts about who God is, is we can't see him. God is spirit. So if we can't see him, how do we come to know him? Well, God, by his grace has revealed himself to us. How? Well, notice what he says. God, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Where does ungodliness and unrighteousness come from? What is its origin, according to the Apostle Paul? It's a suppression of the truth. We don't just simply wake up and start doing unrighteous things. But all sin fundamentally comes from a suppression of the truth. You go back to the book of Genesis and the fall and the origin of sin in Adam and Eve, and it's a suppression of the truth. First question of the Bible coming from Satan, did God really say? A questioning of the truth. The origin of every sinful action is ultimately its wrong belief, a suppression of the truth, a questioning that God did not actually say. He cannot be trusted. And yet here Paul is again reminding us, no, God did say. He's revealed himself for who he is. Notice what he says now in verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Again, this is to all men, to all people. God has revealed himself and he has made it plain. He's made it plain. He's made it clear. Notice then he says, because God has shown it to them. Again, whether you believe in God or not, he's made it plain. He's made it clear. He's revealed himself. You say, well, how could that be? How could that be true for all people? There are so many 
divergent views of God. Not simply, is there a God or not, but even, even if you say, well, there is a God, so many various religions, so many ways to define him, so much misunderstanding, even within Christianity and various denominations, we argue over various bits of theology. How can Paul say that? Verse 20, for his invisible attributes, that is, his character, his traits, what he's like, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So, they're without excuse. Apostle Paul is making the point that no human being has an excuse to say, oh, well, I didn't know. Now he's saying, look, this has been clearly revealed to us by our creator and that his fingerprints are all over creation. Now this is for us living in the city, sometimes hard for us to fathom. We live in a man-made city. As I was driving early this morning from my house to the church, I cross 75 and I can see the lights of downtown. I'm driving on concrete, past man-made buildings, on a man-made surface, and as beautiful as this church campus is, it is also man-made. As we look at all of this, you might think, well, the lights of downtown are beautiful. We can appreciate architecture, such as the architecture and design of this building. But none of this man-made stuff points us to the holy character of God. It's man-made. No, in order to do that, you have to get out of the city. And sometimes you have to get far out of the city. But it's that moment that I would argue that equalizing moment for every human that when you go out, say, to West Texas and you look up in the middle of the night and you can see the Milky Way and you can see more stars than you can even fathom. And in that moment, universally human beings feel something. You know what they feel? They feel small. They feel insignificant. They feel powerless because they're overwhelmed by some power that put it there. Notice what Paul says again, verse 20. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power. When we behold the wonder of creation, we have to wrestle with the power behind it. That's why the very first verse in the Bible, I believe, is polemical. It's an argument. In the beginning, God created. <laughs> it's a radical declaration that there is a God and he created all things. And the Apostle Paul here in Romans 1 is saying he has put himself on display. The psalmist put it this way. This is Psalm 19, verse 1. Many of you have probably heard this before, but this is what it's talking about. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Why do we look at a sunset and think, oh, that's beautiful? Because in that moment, whether we know what to call it or not, we are seeing the beauty and majesty of God. His power, his transcendence, 
what Paul here calls the divine nature. Theologians call this general revelation. Okay? General revelation. That means that God has revealed himself generally to all human beings. That every human being fundamentally is going to have to reckon with the question, is there a God? And what is he like? Why? Because of creation. Because of the things that he has made. He has revealed himself generally as the creator of all things. But there's a problem. There's a second thing I want you to know. Men have exchanged this truth for a lie. Even though God has generally revealed himself and everything he has made, men have exchanged the truth for a lie. Look with me, verse 21. For although they knew God, that is, human beings, mankind, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And again, I want you to think about the context that Paul is writing this. He's writing this to the Christian church in Rome. He's helping them understand their place in a fallen culture where people have rejected who God is. They've rejected who God has revealed himself to be. The same thing could be said of us in our time, in our place, in our cultural moment. How are we supposed to live? Well, Paul's helping us understand how we are supposed to live. How are we supposed to understand the people around us, the people who've given up on truth, given up on the Bible, given up on God, given up on who they understand themselves to be, and what it means to live rightly as a human? Paul's explaining where it comes from. Again, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. I love that verse. We could spend a lot of time on this verse. We don't have time this morning. But we see this throughout the New Testament, particularly Apostle Paul, as he was writing in his culture, that what looks like wisdom is foolishness. So much of the Roman culture, the Greek culture, was centered around the pursuit of wisdom, worldly wisdom and philosophy. You could say the same about our time and place today. What looks like wisdom is actually foolishness. And then he will also go on to say elsewhere in the New Testament, in Corinthians, that what looks like foolishness in the gospel is actually salvation. The cross of Jesus Christ, the gospel God become flesh, dying and rise again for you and for me, that that is foolishness to an unbelieving world. They claimed to be wise, they became fools. Verse 23, they exchanged the glory of a mortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Again, in Genesis, we learn that we as human beings were made in God's image. But when you reject the character of God, we tend to make God in our image. And then we worship other things as if they were God. We put God, the Holy One, the Mighty One, the One of divine power, and we make Him lower than us and lower than the things around us. We make Him in our image so that we can worship the things around us. It's the great exchange. 
They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Then notice what it says here. And this is why I would argue everything we see in our world today begins with that question. Is there a God? What is he like? Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Do you see it? They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They made God in their image, and instead they worshiped the things around them. And all of that led to God giving them up to the lusts of their flesh, so that they would pursue their own passions, that their own passions might destroy themselves. Fast forward 2,000 years later, there's nothing new under the sun. But as we look around in our cultural moment, you see all of these questions and all the things that are swirling around. What is truth and what is sexuality? What is gender? What does it mean to live as a Christian in our time and place? All of it begins with one fundamental question that we so rarely ask. Do you believe there's a God? And what do you really think he's like? Because how you will answer that question will determine every single other thing in your life. And so if God has clearly revealed himself, and yet human beings have the tendency to suppress that truth and to exchange the truth for a lie, then what do we do? What do we do as people who are confused in a world that's constantly telling us lies about who God is? among people who are prone to believe those lies. Well, not only has God revealed himself generally, thanks be to God that he has revealed himself specifically to you and to me. It's the last thing I want you to know. Before you go to your tables, the righteousness of God is revealed by faith. God, by his grace, cuts through all of this. He cuts through the lies, the confusion, He cuts through all of the various ways that we can get this wrong. And he has revealed himself by grace, specifically through his word. Look with me, Romans 1, 16. It's how Paul begins this little section of Romans 1. It's there on your sheet, or you can turn there. Romans 1, verse 16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the good news. I'm not ashamed of this thing that seems like foolishness to an unbelieving world. That Jesus Christ is God made flesh. That he lived among us, though lived a sinless life. That he took on our flesh and the poverty of our sin. And that he died in our place on the cross. On the third day he rose again and one day he will come to make all things new. Paul says, I am not ashamed of that. Not ashamed of the good news of the gospel, for it is the power of God. There's that word again, his power. For salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. In other words, to the the theist, the Jew, the one who believes that the God of the Bible is real, but then also to the Greek, to the one who thinks all of this is foolish. To every man, it's the power of God for salvation. But he doesn't stop there. 
For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. There's the word again. God has revealed himself. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. It's a way of saying the only way that you can truly come to know who God is is by faith alone. Well, by faith in what? Well, by faith in the gospel. Well, how do we know the gospel? God has not just revealed himself generally in the things he has made, but theologians also talk about another category of revelation in its special revelation. God has revealed himself specifically in his holy word. Have you ever held your Bible and truly considered what you are holding in your hand? Not simply a book, and not simply a bunch of pieces of theology or stories or letters or history. It's all those things. But each one of those things were put there specifically by God in his grace in order to reveal himself to you. To cut through all the lies and all the confusion and to answer those two fundamental questions. Yes, there is a God. He did really say it. He has actually said it to us in his word. And he has told us very clearly what he is like. So what is he like? Well, there's lots of ways to answer that question. One of the ways you can answer that question I've put there in your handout. One of my favorite definitions of God, it comes from the Westminster Larger Catechism, which is part of our confession here of what we believe at Park City's Presbyterian Church. I want to read it to you. And then I want to show you something that you can't see on your sheet. Let me read it to you first. A catechism is simply a way of thinking about theology and a way of teaching it from generation to generation. It uses questions and answers. It's a rhetorical device or a teaching device. So with each question, fundamental question that's given about theology, about God, about the Bible, there's an answer. So this is Westminster Larger Catechism, question number seven. Very simple, but again, I would argue a fundamental question. What is God. What's he like? Notice the answer. It's on the bottom of your sheet there. God is a spirit in and of himself, infinite in being, glory, blessedness, and perfection, all sufficient, eternal, unchangeable, incomprehensible, everywhere present, almighty, knowing all things, most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant and goodness and truth. And if you're asking this morning, well, where did they get that definition? Good question. Again, we don't want to live vicariously. What you don't see, what I took out, are all the footnotes. And there's a footnote literally on every word. Every single word has a footnote, and that footnote is connected to some passage in the Bible saturated in the scripture because this is where God has revealed himself to us and what he is like. Passages like John 4, 24, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. 1 Timothy 6, 15, he will display at the proper time who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords. Matthew 5, 48, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Psalm 90, verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. Psalm 147, 5, great is our Lord, abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. 
Romans 16, 27, to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Isaiah 6, 3, the one who called to the other said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Exodus 34, 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Together, by God's grace and mercy, we are going to search the scriptures for who God has revealed himself to be. Next week, we'll begin with the holiness of God. And each week, we'll take up a different attribute. His sovereignty, his love, his wrath, his faithfulness, his grace, his omniscience, his omnipotence, his omnipresence, his eternality, his immutability, his righteousness, his goodness, and glory. Each week, we'll be looking at one of these topics. We'll be doing so through the scriptures. And so I invite you to come, invite a friend, and join us as we get to know God for who he is. And in getting to know God, we'll come to know who we are, who he's called us to be as his image bearers. And I would argue it will fundamentally change the way that you worship, the way that you live, and the way that you come to know God. Let me pray for you and send you to your tables. Father, we love you. We thank you for your great love for us, that by grace you have revealed yourself to us. We thank you that you've first done this generally in the things that you have made, but we also praise you this morning that by grace you've done this specifically to us in your word. Oh Lord, help us not to be lazy Christians, to be lazy thinkers, to simply assume things about you and to make you in our own image. But, oh, Lord, would you please, by your grace, come to us now as we search the scriptures and as we encourage and press into one another. Help us to know who you are and who you've revealed yourself to be. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.